disruption doesn't have to be like a big thing. It just has to be a different way that you're working with the tools that are afforded to you. And also figuring out with these tools, how else can I participate in the world in making my art, in putting my art out there, in disseminating my art? Nyambura Waruenge creates, curates, and collaborates through various artistic expressions, encountering unique ways to imagine new worlds. She's a filmmaker and curator who combines art, design, and technology. In this episode, we discuss the art and tech of curation based on her works with Black Rhino VR State of the Art Project, where she was the art director and curator on the Noma XR experience, as well as topics on digital blackness. We also get to understand more about Aquaria and Company and how not to limit storytelling into a linear approach, but to evolve and involve people by listening to their stories and adapting to their needs. This is Naitiamu. Welcome to Africa Design Podcast. We said we'd work backwards because there's so many things we'd love to talk about. First, I'd want to ask you, actually, how did you discover your ability to connect artists and technology? Wow, the heavy hitters, right? I should have had why not coffee. <laughs> I really should have. I think it's because of the time that I was working in uh, film and television. So I cut my teeth uh, in film production in Canada, in Montreal, Canada. That's where I went to study. Um, actually, I want everybody, all the young ones to know that I didn't get in the first time I applied. And so I had to apply a second time. So I really do believe in if you want something, you really go after it, even if somebody has closed the door for whatever reason, you know, you might not be ready according to them or however life pans out. But the most important thing is for you to keep on trying. So I applied, I went to Canada in winter semester, not like everybody who goes in like the autumn, which is September. So I went in December, like in January ahead of everybody. And then I applied to the School of Communication Studies which is uh, really one of the most phenomenal schools in communications, cultural studies, and film studies in Canada and North America and uh, at Concordia University. And I didn't get in. The first year, I didn't get in. And I was like, okay, uh, I've schlepped all the way from the Africa, from Kenya, from Nairobi, Kenya. What do we do next? And also, you know, for us who have grown up with African parents, you have to explain <laughs> why you didn't get in. Uh, I mean, your grades were there. What, what did you do? You know, so I tried again and I got in the second time. And about that time, what was happening in the world was around early 2000, 2005, 2006, people were looking at how do we work with the Internet? as not just as a marketing strategy for films, which if you remember a film called Gangs of New York by um, the great Scorsese, uh, Gangs of New York had uh, internet, like a web page that was really um, an attempt of interaction. So they had like a map and all of that type of stuff. And those are the things we're learning in like digital media communication, which was basically Photoshop <laughs> at that point in time, not the Unity and everything else everybody's learning right now. So um, during that time, it was how do you link the internet to the films that you're making? And I was fortunate enough to work hard and really knock at the door of um, the National Film Board of Canada. It was an organization that 
we is revered in terms of documentary and I just wanted to get in I just wanted to get in and oh at a point I got the chance to apply for a position and I got in and it's one of those positions where you believe they've already been taken it was a coordinator position in the director general's office of the English program and I got in I couldn't believe it and when I did it was also an important time for them because the animation studio uh that has is you know has so many oscar nominations so many oscar wins and also because they are at the vanguard of all this type of um innovation in media and animation they're the ones who started stereoscopic work and all of that and trying to understand how we're looking at transmedia and creating documentary for transmedia so during that time i just recognized that there's a place there's a place for that and that was mid 2000s and so coming back to kenya when i decided i wanted to set up my own creative enterprise that became a koyan company it was it just seemed so obvious that technology would be a part of it and not just you know technology is everywhere like new media a new media approach to the work that you that you're doing um collaboration across artistic disciplines whether you're working with literature moving images uh you're working with the web as also a portal for to access work and all of that so that just came from the work that I was doing prior to moving back here and the organizations I was working with and during that this time prior to moving to Kenya which was 2012 a lot of work was being done online because the notion of accessibility how we're getting different audiences uh, and then what are we creating for them and also understanding that you're also dealing with niche audiences so how are you creating different niches as you're going along and not necessarily thinking you're taking away from your moving image which would be the film that would be in theater or in different you know cultural organizations because that was something that I learned out of working with two organizations one of them being Idlulik Isuma that uh, produced the first Inuit language film in Canada called Atanajuat and um Zacharias Konok uh won the camera door during that time you know and as a director and it really opened up a uh, filmmaking in the north and that's basically how we're told we're told we work in the south and they worked in the north and we even had to adjust to the time so uh there were times like it's hunting season so hunting season is coming up so you need to get all the information you need because nobody's going to be in the office because it's hunting season so you also learn different timelines and working with literally different types of communities so that was i think the trajectory to when i decided to have my own creative enterprise was you know what everybody's welcome and how do we work across and that really came into play with the no direct flight uh a film season where right now uh down river road has uh, published asphyxia that has the cinema collaboration which is writers reflecting on different films that were part of the film season so really just making ways that different artistic disciplines can participate in a moving image project having started acoya and and company and you've gone into a lot of immersive technology and involving a lot of creatives what are some of the projects you worked on like noma exhibition how was it it was a culmination of a lot of what i had been working on i was really lucky to have uh, to work with the artists that we did what was really exciting about noma was it hadn't been done before and so how do we bring the different programming around it which was about really getting different 
communities, constituency groups to participate. So that would mean how do we get artists to come and talk to other artists about the work that they're doing? And how does the amplification of using VR and AR tools, how does that shift some of the work and how you think about producing the work? which is for me very exciting because, you know, you make a film, there's, you know, there's, you know, development, production, post-production, you know, it comes out, it goes out either in cinema and now because you have digital cinema, you're no longer thinking about like the film stock or any of that. Um, so you have D-Cinema, you kind of just drop it down and it's screened wherever in the world. But with this, it became a discussion around, okay, what are we, this is a story, but it's functioning in another world. So how is it that this story can be told through Google Blocks? Or how is this story going to be told using Tilt Brush? And it kind of becomes a sense of genre. So you know the way um, you have fantasy film. There's a certain way fantasy films look. If they don't look a certain way, you're like, they lied to us. There's no way this is a fantasy film. So I find for me was just learning how to now look into how you create a genre around your work using the different tools that you do have and thinking about not just staring, telling a story in a linear way, you know, in a narrative way that is one leads to the another outside of experimental film, but really getting people to get into the world of what you're doing. And that was the change and the flip. It's a way that artists can take something that is right, that's usually placed on a wall that we interact in a very 2D kind of perspective, but we get to take a walk in the work that they do. And that was what was exciting and figuring out, you know, how do you get people to move around? How do you get people to turn around? How do you get people, if you're watching on the Rift, how does this work? If you're watching on a Quest, how does this work? If you're watching off the phone, how would it work? So you're also adapting to the platforms that you're using. And also looking, I mean, one of my favorite things was watching other people because you also learned what made them tick and what they responded to. And I mean, this was pre-COVID, so everybody was packed in a room. And at any point in time, people were sharing devices. People were watching other people, uh, you know, participate and interact with the work. And then that got them courage, you know, you know, at times, you know, putting, donning on that headset, getting, you know, <laughs> into all of that, it, it can be daunting. And at times you're like, I'm not messing with my hair for that. Uh, but <laughs> in terms of, you know, watching the excitement and the investigation and the world that they go through, because we had screens to have people watch what other people were uh, doing in the world, they're like, oh, I want to go there or I, I want to see where else I can go. So it really became a participatory, immersive experience that was not only for those who were uh, using the headsets or on their phones, but for those who are just watching. And that was what was also exciting. And then creating a program for the kids, the middle schoolers, and, you know, they were schooling us on what to do better. <laughs> And that's always fun. Also then bringing the artists, as I said, artists to artist talks and also having public programming where you have people come in and interact with the work. And that for me was a success of Norma was it wasn't just for the silo, for the in crowd. It was for everyone. And I'd have parents ask me, could you take this to Village Market? Could you take this to Galeria? Because I'd like for my children to interact with this. I want them to see what is possible. So it, that was really great about it. And 
in terms of working, I think for the artists, because I come from film, so you have about 10 departments at any time having to collaborate with each other. But for visual artists who tend to work by themselves most of the time, because we're working mostly with uh, people who painted, was that they learned that there was a team around recognizing and bringing your vision to life. There were coders, um, there were UX designers, you know, there were UI designers. There's everybody who participates in how you make your work. So also kind of looking at the collaborative approach to working and making art that's also yours that you have different people that are part of it. Yeah, so I think that was uh, something that was really great, was a shift in how artists looked at their work, how it could come to life, a shift in terms of the different people who get involved in making your work come to life, and then the interaction and the audience feedback in ways that doesn't necessarily happen with the visual arts, particularly, because at this point we're working specifically with visual artists. Your, a lot of your work is designing immersive experiences, right? So an exhibit. How do you ensure, first of all, that those are inclusive, like you said? By trial and error. There's, there's nothing eloquent about that. It's literally trial and error. And inclusion even includes the thought of, is there a ramp that leads people to that space? Is where, where do you position the work? Uh, so that people, differently able people can experience it by having people on site to ensure that people can get to the work that they want. And then from the creative perspective, like making the work, I think a big part is crit sessions. You know, crit sessions are a part of the art world, which is basically you sit down and critique work, but also really focusing on what the creative development is before the work actually comes out. So uh, what happens is spending a lot of time in creative development in order to have work that taking its time to cook. You know, imagine a slow cooker, <laughs> like really thinking through and uh, consistently refining the idea. Your first idea is great. It leads you down a great path. But how are you consistently refining the idea so that your output, I know that's not a sexy word, but your output becomes something that's evocative. And that takes going back consistently and constant, which can be daunting and can be daunting, particularly if you're used to working by yourself. And that happens a lot for visual artists. You know, it's it's a solo mission. You're solitary. You're there. You're crying. No one hears you. Whatever you're doing, you know, it comes out and everybody thinks you're epic. But the journey to get there is, is a difficult one. So in this type of space, it also is around um, vulnerability and the care that goes, and that's what I love about my work. As much as I'm a producer, I really love the development aspect of it and the distribution. The notion of production, like being on set and everything else, it's cute, uh, I think it's awesome. Doesn't particularly drive me unless I'm the director. I love the development, which is really getting in with the work, really understanding what the work is, really finding out what the possibilities are, laying them down, going back and forth, refining, getting the right partners, letting go of others that might not be working, and that's a hard one, and then having something that the output then to a lot of people looks effortless. But because you spend so much time in development and you've spent so much time working through 
how everything joins to each other and how all this is going to influence middle schoolers who are going to come in, that is going to influence the public and how you communicate to the public, how you display to the public, how you document the work itself being done. That's, that's where I thrive. So the inclusion happens at that point and it has to be intentional. Inclusion is not just saying we're missing women, add women. If your project did not think about being representative of the world around you, adding people later on, it, it, it does it, it does come off as disingenuous and depending, some may not see it that way, but I'm just saying that inclusion begins with the seed, you know, that seed idea where you're thinking, okay, who else? Who else can be a part of it? And why is it important? And being intentional intentional about that. And also the ethics, you know. With Noma, one of the things is we do have the middle schoolers and we do have photos of them. However, for me, it was, do we have the releases for these images? Because we know how many images of African children circulate around the world without their permission or permission from their parents or permission from the guardians or permission from the adults because, you know, African children are used to sell things. Even at that point, no, we're not. If we're taking photos, are there releases for that? You know, if you're working with kids, when they came in, I ensured that they had games to play with. When the, you know, when when the one able, you know, we didn't have the machines for like 20, 30 kids, but the idea was, okay, if they're not on the Rift, they're not on the Quest, then where else can they be? They were on the goals, looking at games, working on games, you know, that type of thing. So, Really, you have to, inclusion starts at the beginning. And inclusion is not additive. Inclusion is really how you think about the world and how you want to represent the world. I attended the NOMA exhibition, by the way. It was really amazing. I loved Thank how you. the artists that I know, because I knew a lot of the artists, Michael Musioka, Ijaka. Yes. And how they were able to transform their usual works into an immersive technology way. And I was so impressed because there was a flow in the story and it meant that there were people who worked behind all this to put this together. And you talked about disruptive technology or disruptive approach. How do you how do you do that? I didn't realize a lot of what I was doing was considered disruptive, to be honest. Um, I think disruption, I am I'm now kind of grappling with the word. I think what I've been able to do is create on the edge of things. And that's what feels disruptive for people. And initially, I've, I've always wanted to work online transmedia. And that is what was disruptive because it wasn't conventional. It was um, really looking at how work traveled across platforms. But now the disruption is kind of becoming status quo, right? So I don't know what next unless, you know, I fuse with, uh, I don't know, a sentient alien. Uh, I may be disrupted. <laughs> but I think this space of working at the edge is considered disruptive and disruptive is also in terms of the intention of how you're working. You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, how did you think about that? And I was like, because we have to, if we're going to change how we're working, if we're going to change how the financing looks like, we have to think beyond ourselves. And I really don't say outside the box. It's really beyond ourselves, really pushing ourselves to think radically, think differently, think in ways that shifts um, the space and that happens over time 
And so for me, later, people will say, oh, that was really disruptive. I was like, oh, okay, fine. But that comes out of a continuum of work and also lending space to new ways of storytelling. I mean, you know, you guys have been running um, a series on digital storytelling and that really opens up the space. Um, we had a we had a like a get together workshop, and Longinos uh, Longinos Nagila was talking about how we're we're shifting how we're working and understanding how to use NFTs, uh, not just as you know uh, dropping you know dropping the NFT and you know people show up for the auction, but looking at how blockchain becomes a way of documenting work of ensuring that, you know, your copyright is exactly as it is. And, you know, so it was very different. So he's using that technology. He's uh, thinking around that technology is a little bit different and kind of saying it it might not be um, how people are thinking about earning money and making tons of money. It really is from literally curatorial kind of way of creating the work and doing that type of stuff. So I think disruption doesn't have to be like a big thing. It just has to be a different way that you're working with the tools that are afforded to you. And also figuring out with these tools, how else can I participate in the world in making my art, in putting my art out there, in disseminating my art? Um, there's going to be a point in time uh, WhatsApp campaigns are going to be disruptive <laughs> because we're not on IG or whatever. But I'm just trying to say that it's, for everybody listening, it's it's not really uh, you know trying to do the most different thing it's really looking at what you have and saying how can i do it differently how can i shift um a space that i'm in immersive exhibits then what what makes an exhibit immersive and how has your approach to to them evolved with experience dear lord i should have been on wine i don't know why i'm on coffee um (laughs) okay Uh, there's no hard and fast rule for it (laughs) Uh, some will say it's the technology. For me, it's the thinking around how people walk into a space. And that was what I find normal was. It isn't just about the technology. Silent movies were highly immersive. You watched a thing and you had a band play the music. Highly immersive experience. And you ate and you smoked and life went on and you drank. And that's how we watched movies. Folklore stories around the fire. 360, <laughs> you know, like, let's be honest, those are 360 and it comes from different communities that gathered and then there was a call response kind of moment. So at times, you know, let's not get precious about, you know, the technology and how do we immerse ourselves and, you know, we need a headset or we need AR, we need a phone and if your phone isn't that, no. I think really immersion is about creating an experience. Now, if you're working with an immersive technology specifically, you have WebXR, which is a little bit different. You're using it off your computer or off your telephone. I said telephone, off your mobile phone. (laughs) Off your mobile phone, uh, you're looking at different ways that create a universe you walk into. So I think of immersion as how do I create a universe that I can look around? Now, the different technologies that heighten that, for sure. And the different technologies that take us beyond, you know? Uh, So that truly is that. But in thinking of exhibitions, it isn't just about having the technology there. It's from the moment people walk into the space, how has their perspective shifted? So actually, now I have a question for Naitiamu. Did your perspective shift in any way when you walked into the space of Norma? Yes. 
I feel um, I did not know what to expect. Um, I'd seen a couple of posts, you know, in social media, but I hadn't visibly gone to the space. So when I went to the space, I was interested in first how the space was used. You know, usually an exhibition space, you expect perhaps maybe the walls are the ones that I use, and the rest of the space is empty. But when I walked into this exhibition space, I could see that clearly you're creating your world around the space available within the, the bigger space. So I really like the fact that I could be able to view different artworks by just standing on an empty space and you're told, you know, just just hold this and, and look through it. That, that to me was very immersive actually because it's creating different worlds that actually don't exist physically but then yeah. they do exist and also just seeing how the artists transformed their stories in these immersive ways like watching watching Ngene Moura's yes Ngenne's was so like caught me because I felt you know Ngene's works were always immersive just by looking at it you know? exactly you know, having right? that opportunity to be inside it it was crazy yes. Because yeah. I was, you know, you feel you're in Gene's world in all those little things that he did and rest in peace, Gene. We really, yes. yeah, a, a hero, yes. you know, like I felt that work represented his work beyond what we normally experience and not just yeah. him, all the artists were involved. Yeah, I, and I think that's, um, so in terms of holding that space and holding that work and making the work speak to each other and really thinking through how people walk into the space and what they see. On the walls we had, I made sure to have um, quotes from the different artists that participated as to what um, their new journey in, you know, using immersive technology, using AR, VR tools meant. And also, you know, let's um, thank you to Jenga CCI for financing the project and Black Rhino VR for powering the project and working with the artists and, you know, the technology that they had that brought everything to life. And this was part of uh, what Black Rhino was doing in terms of the state of the art project. So for me, I worked as an artistic director and curator for the show and so for the showcase. And so it really, again, as you can see, there are all these different parts that make this. And in terms of immersive experiences, I just like for people to know that there are different ways um, that you can create this. Uh, you can through dance, the different ways that dance and immersive theater works that is a mixed reality experience. It happens in the headset, on the walls, and in the physical space itself. So not limiting yourself to one particular technology, but thinking through how the work is evocative in different ways and using different platforms and then welcoming people into those spaces. And I'm very clear about saying welcoming because none of this technology exists at home. You know, <laughs> so uh, there is that moment of, you know, what what is this? It's a headset. Where does it go on my head? It kind of feels weird. You know, how do we welcome people to get to use this? Oh, I have. Oh, my God. I have to click and do things. You know, uh, how do you make that something that they can access? And, you know, right now, Made by Eden are making what you call the snacker, which is this kind of headset that you don't strap on your head. You kind of hold it to your face. So those are also kind of innovations that are happening in 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 the space to 
really create a more welcoming viewing experience, participatory experience. And for me, even creating immersive experiences comes from my background uh, making film, where it is literally about deconstructing the film, which is audiovisual. <laughs> so how am I using sound in a different way in a space? How is uh, how my visuals uh, working that, you know, some can be gaze-based if someone gets close and looks at a certain thing. Another, it opens another world or allows them to access another aspect of the story that they're already in. And so, you know, even going back, it goes back to, for me, making film. So at the end of the day, I think Naitiamu, you and I have had this conversation. It really goes back to story. So how well do you tell a story? I was on a... Uh, like a webinar yesterday and John Truby, who's uh, this amazing uh, screen uh, writer, screen doctor uh, in Hollywood, who talks about narrative drive, which is how many, you know, how many actions one of the other propels the person, the protagonist forward that makes us as an audience want to watch. So what becomes a narrative drive of this space that you're in? You know, it can just be like, oh, we have gaze-based, we have this, we have that. You know, it's six dwarf and all of that. It's so sexy. But what's the narrative drive? Why am I watching this? Why am I entering this world? You still need a great story and you still need to know the mechanics of story and then transport that into the space that you're in and then explore it now in different ways. Like, oh my God, I can do this through someone just looking. So it's gaze-based or I have to look for the shadow. And so I turn around to find where the shadow is. But what prompts me to do that? It's understanding sound design. You know, so at the end of the day, it really is a deconstructed film. It is a deconstructed form of storytelling too. So as much as we propel ourselves forward with all this innovation, a lot of the, the foundations still stay the same. You still have to create a narrative drive that makes people want to move within this universe. It's not just about the technologies. How do we move? And then, you know, now you have UX and uh, UI designers that help you create that uh, motion to, to, through the world that you're in. As you've been talking about immersive experiences and reminding us that a truly immersive experience is supposed to be one that takes you as closely to the physical as possible. So the best immersive experience is actually a physical one, right? So, oh, yeah. Is, is this live? Is this live? Because I'll yeah. get in trouble. I'll get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get in um, trouble. So, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hide it. We'll unlist it. <laughs> As you're talking about immersive experiences, right? We're trying to, even VR is trying to take us into the real. So actually being in a theater is already being there, right? And you reminded me of one of the most immersive experiences I've been to, which also had amazing design, which uh, sound design, which was in Warsaw, Poland. It was a, <clears throat> it was a, a blind exhibit that it was, it's a whole museum of really that teaches you about this, the history of products that have been designed for blind people, etc. Oh, wow. The core experience is done with a guide who's actually visually impaired. And these guides take you into a pitch black space and they ask you, where are we? And then you have to feel around and you have to get around and you feel 
you know, this is in Poland, so there's that kind of, you walk in and it's a, it's a refrigerator, it's a cooker, where um, people, people in Poland have small apartments, so you kind of feel like you're in this apartment, and then you walk through and you feel like another room, and then you walk out into the street, uh, and other other experiences as well. I don't even want to give too much away, but it it kind of makes up for what you don't see with the with uh, the other senses you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, just so that I don't get in too much trouble. <laughs> Um, is that what happens with immersive technology is that it creates our fantasy world, you know, and it creates our future world. So I think that is now the difference. However, let us not get lost in not realizing that this has been actually, we've been getting here steadily as storytellers because there is a history, there is a trajectory. What was it called? Was it called Sensoria? I'm sorry. But it had smell as part of it. And now we're going back to, and everybody thought this is like, this is this is too much. It's not making sense. And that, I think it was the early 80s, maybe. I'm not so sure. And then now we're like, we're creating smell. We're having an immersive culinary experience, you know? So it's not as new as we think it is. It's just more accessible now in the iteration that it's in right now. And I think working in understanding storytelling is so important because you can't take it away. The technology is the tool. The content is a story. And however you craft your story, it still has to have narrative drive. So that that still has to be brought to bear on, on how you construct uh, stories, immersive experiences, how we think through the work that we're doing, and going back to what Naitiemu said is, you know, looking at the work at, at Noma and like, Ghana's work and all of that, we were, we were uh, Ghana with uh, Ijaka, uh, Imaus, Nsioka, Vergadi, uh, Peteros, Sila, all those guys, we sat down and we thought through the work. We went back and forth and for them to get where they wanted to and kind of also saying, oh, I'd like this. And then here is a quote who says, like, here you have it. You know, so it was also like magic <laughs> happening as we went along. So it was, you know, as you said, an amplification of the work. But at the, the heart of it was a story they wanted to tell. You know, for me, paintings, like just 2D, it captures a moment. For them, they were able to take that moment and explore it through uh, AR and VR tools. And then as a curator, I was able to create a story as people walked in uh, to the space and, you know, kind of gave people a feel and made it immersive, if you make, you know, but, you know, conceptually too, you know, it really derives from that. So I look back to just the simple ways that I was trying to use the internet. Um, you know, when Easter Ray came up with Awkward Black Girl, I was like, okay, there's apparently uh, people online who watch things, you know, <laughs> I mean, YouTube uh, got a defining moment when the BMW movies were released on YouTube and suddenly we were like, wait, it's not just about this personal videos that went on and suddenly it became cinema medium. Uh, BMW started it, not too many people got onto it, but I think 
um, not too many brands got onto it right after. But I remember at the National Film Board, they're still trying to figure out how, how do we use these spaces? You know, how do we, um, and that's part of audience development, audience interaction, really creating an audience so that whatever you have that comes on later, you have, you know, you're able to market it to a ready audience. And so I tried with Maria's Boys and I, we shot a film uh, we shot uh, a series, three-parter, and we were like, oh, what, what happens if you put things online? And that then kind of creates a sense of, okay, if we're going to be doing this, even if you're telling these stories in this space, now YouTube is so normal for us. It's been normalized in our, our lives. It's where we get our information uh, before it was a television. So um, I think it's a continuum Particularly also, I think, around audience building, because whatever you're doing, particularly as an artist and even as a brand, you have to have been building your audience. And before you go to an interview, I'm part of this uh, a group called XR Women. And yesterday we had Kathy Hackle on. And what happens is she just said, you know, don't forget before you're interviewed, they go on your LinkedIn, they go on your socials. <laughs> Find out what you're about and what you're bringing to the table and what an audience, like what audience are you bringing in? Like what's your personal brand like? You know, so it's really different now. I mean, I know we've expanded beyond just immersive experiences, but part of it was when you're talking about how uh, Norma had, you know, you had seen some things online was we're trying to build an audience online. So it makes sense when people come in and it was really great. And even with the No Direct Flight uh, film season, all of it was about building an audience online so that the work that we put out two months later would make sense. You know, it, it wouldn't have been, and it was during COVID, like right in November, 2020. And we had to figure out how do we bring people to the spaces uh, that are virtual to watch films and for them to email us back and say, I never finished watching my film. When is this coming back on? You know, <laughs> understanding different types of part of your digital storytelling, I think also should factor in that people watch differently online. So there's a, a big aspect of leisure. So you're going to be allowing them more time than you would have in a in real life kind of event. And that's something that I'm working on with another film festival out of Brazil. And one of the things is like, yeah, have 10 days, but over a month, because people want to come back. They watch very differently on their devices. Actually, talking about film festivals, currently there's Under Our Skin Film Festival, which is about yes. human rights. And we had an opportunity to watch the opening fest, uh, the opening screening. Amazing work by Zippy. And, yes. Uh, She's so yeah. prolific. She is such a prolific <laughs> filmmaker. Filmmaker, curator, just producer extraordinaire. When when it comes to no direct flight, I guess that you're you're a filmmaker, like you've said as well. So hopefully that was an exciting project, and the theme was digital blackness in the age of the internet, right? So how do projects like that contribute to the creatives and the industry as a whole? For for what we did uh, with no direct flight, what I really concentrated on was actually the critique of digital blackness and what is digital blackness versus what is versus but how do we include Africanness as a part of it we're also looking at you know discussions around um, how do those shift 
and the notion of, you know, it's really interesting to say diversity <laughs> within a, a very defined place that's called, you know, the African diaspora. Uh, but how does the African diaspora and the African continent, how do we speak to each other? And how and what is digital blackness? And one of the things that we really talked about in terms of digital blackness is how, because in the African diaspora, the access to mainstream broadcast, mainstream spaces is still very much there very many gatekeepers how have black people use the internet and use a digital space and virtual space to continue to create work to circulate work about themselves and everything else and then on our side you know as we're you know we're in africa we're like well you know you guys us we don't even have access <laughs> you know and so it really was a back and forth and so how did it contribute to the space is with the conversations uh, and more importantly with, you know, the people that we worked with and hired across were the videographer that was part of all the media that we made and the team. Um, we had artists that were participating, graphic designers, and we had the filmmakers themselves to have access actually for people to have access to this type of filmmakers because at times you know people are like oh exposure i'm like no 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 we are <laughs> exposing you to their work and what happened was it, you know i've said this on a different program that you had and it was you know we had people from uh north america south america europe australia southeast asia beijing <laughs> actually for the access in terms of um what we saw People were really interested in this and people really, there's a dearth of African content by Africans from the continent. Whew, that's, that's a hard word. So them getting to see this work, some of it was older, you know, it wouldn't get to participate in certain film festivals because of, uh, you know, usually it's about two years and, you know, film festivals want to be ahead in terms of what they're presenting and want fresh and everything else. But some of them are like, where can I watch more of these? And so as filmmakers, I also want to encourage you to have your content available. Some of your films will travel the world for the next 10 years because they're relevant and they, they're interesting and because they have such a unique voice. I had a filmmaker ask me, but I did this two years, three years ago. Uh, why are you interested? I'm like, because your film is good and it's interesting. And I feel with the film season, I was able to go outside what film festivals, you know, how they function and the expiry dates on films is to bring back films that got maybe to tour a little bit, but not necessarily a lot, or they're lot, you know, kind of lost in Vimeo world and getting them back and getting people to see them. So that was really exciting in terms of uh, a focus on, on African content, African diaspora content that was speaking to each other. I had a comment from someone who said, you know, I don't get to watch Egyptian film and that was Hennet Ward. And it occurred to me that, yeah, actually, in Kenya, do we get to watch Egyptian film? We don't. Yet there's so much out there. But, you know, what is the system of film festivals and the circulation of cultural products within Africa? Very few times do we get to watch ourselves. And that was, for me, uh, no direct flight, aside from the employment it created, is the ability for us to watch ourselves in ways that have been rare. You know, we're always exporting ourselves elsewhere. <laughs> and it was just a great moment where we got to see ourselves. And I, I hope to continue to work in that way. 
Um, other than uh, filmmakers, you had also musicians, right? With the sonic experiences. How did that come about and how were they involved in it? Oh, okay. Thank you very much for bringing it. Yeah. So as anyone by now has noticed that I work across different artistic disciplines and I always bring them together. So uh, for me, the sonic sessions, one was, so we had three different sonic sessions. So actually, let's start at the beginning. No Direct Flight was meant to be a in real life event, but three days in May. It wasn't COVID hit, it was 2020. And we had to rethink how all this was going to be structured, how this was going to exist online, how it was going to have audience show up. And so for me, what became very clear was I mean, you know, you always say, you know, the work has to be relevant and all of that because, you know, it is there's a concert. People show up, people enjoy the music and all of that. But then I said, no, it has to be intimate. Now, how do we do this? So we had uh, Fena and Mudoni Drama Queen. One, So we had three sessions, one Fena and, and Mudoni Drama Queen, another one DJ Delight and Ricky Suede, also known as uh, Biti Masia. And then Espresso, who are a new hip-hop Nairobi sound group who actually released their EP with us, like just released some of their music uh, during this time. So all these three different sonic sessions and as well as the films was about linking past, present and future. And so with uh, Fena and Mudoni Jama Queen, I was really looking at if people were to come and watch, what would they want to see aside from a concert? It's very different to watch a concert online. It doesn't work the same way. But how? what would we like to know about them and about their creative process, about making this music and interspersing it with the different songs that they're talking about that have impacted their lives, that they struggled making maybe, or what 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 was the impetus for this type of song? And I started to think through how can the sonic sessions link past, present, and future for us um, within Nairobi? Because this was NDF, no direct flight to Nairobi. There was one in London, there was one in Philadelphia, and there's one here. So how do we bring ours to the world? And so for me, uh, Fana and Rodney Jama Queen have both very different styles, but at the same time, they're really at the vanguard of what they're doing and how they participate in the world and how they flow in our world, uh, particularly in Nairobi. And then with DJ Delight and Ricky Sway, was really looking at hip hop and popular music in Nairobi. Like how, you know, how long have we been around? Because I find that each generation thinks they've started something new. <laughs> Myself included, I really think I'm on the edge of everything. But then, you know, if you do your history lesson, you learn that so-and-so was doing it then. And I think when we start to dive into the archives of different artistic expressions, we get stronger and we, you know, maybe we'll sample or just look at how, you know, how far we've come. And so that that moment with uh, DJ Delight, who himself with... Um, Audio Vault uh, is the reason for a lot of popular music that we have in Nairobi. Keishaka, all those guys. And so that was really interesting. And then Ricky Suede kind of bringing in, you know, the latter end uh, of it as growing up being influenced by people like DJ Delight. So it was this really trying to meld this past, present, future. And then with Espresso and their sound, which is very different. It's a, a collaborative effort between like five different people, different types of uh, producers, singers, rappers. And so the Sonic Sessions were part of that continuum of 
looking at how music sound is a part of this landscape and a film landscape. I mean, now what is film without sound? Even during the silent films, they'd be, they'd be playing. So that was really important to me. And with that, it, it was important to have those sonic sessions as just kind of laying the past, present, future of Nairobi music. And that just opened the door for other things. It's, it's just a beginning. And, you know, as I said, I'd love to continue doing work like that because it allows me to, to go across back and forth and then also find out uh, really great artists to use in my immersive experiences. So, Amazing. Yeah. You know, we don't want to we take up too much of your time. We've got so many stories. We could probably take up another hour easily. So that's an invitation to come back, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> About Akoya & Co., where you are now, what you've started and, and what you're doing to bring all of these things that you've learned in, in industry. So what, what is Akoya & Co.? Akoya & Company really is a space where I get to play and get paid for it. Um, <laughs> and my play comes with the type of projects that I take on. And the reason it's called a Korean company is because we collaborate. And that's always very important. I sent out a request to partner with Nairobi Design Week because we're working, we're looking to see how we can create an incubator that is an accelerator uh, for different types of artists and particularly around digital storytelling and immersive storytelling and how to use um, immersive technologies and what to use it for and, you know, just go beyond um, what they're used to. It, it, it really is about partnering to create an ecosystem within um, the creative space, the creative and cultural space so that we can thrive. Right now, we've gone into development. Um, development is a very unsexy term for I'm writing a lot of proposals. <laughs> And so um, I'm looking, my focus is transmedia work. So uh, looking at how a series ties into a WebXR experience, ties into an exhibition, ties into a showcase. There's a lot of um, that type of work that I'm really pitching around at the moment. So we have a couple of pitches that I'm taking around. Also, I've been very intentional with the type of work that I've been doing. And therefore, I've been mentoring a couple of people just quietly. People, they're welcome to ask me questions and all of that. And that's always fun because you get to see how the space is changing. You get to see what's of interest to young people, uh, young creators, um, and you get to participate in ways that are also fulfilling, that kind of drive the space and allow me to dabble in different uh, corners of the discipline, so to speak. Um, the big thing right now is also research work around the archive, as you can tell, uh, that's very important uh, for Akoya and myself, is how can we use our archival space to strengthen our creative and cultural industries? And what does that look like? Because at times we spend a lot of time, and this is something that was talked about my generation, you're copying the West, you know? <laughs> you're always copying the West, you're so Westernized. And I I was at a family gathering where my uncle, he's so much older, and he's like, you know, our cultures are not strong. And I was like, no, they're very strong. We just don't use them. So that became a challenge for me. It was like, oh, so how are you using, how are you reinvigorating the cultural space that is already available, the cultural work that's already available? How are you dipping into that and how are you telling the stories? 
that aren't just, oh, this is a sex in the city in Nairobi, you know, or this is this and that in Nairobi, or, you know, the way we, I think there's a just certain class of Nairobians. And I think just for all of us who are so connected on our smartphones, we have access to the world in a way that none, you know, I didn't grow up like that. And so it's always saying it's like in Nairobi in this way. But how about Nairobi, just Nairobi for itself? And we kind of do a deep dive into that, which a lot of other artists are doing. I think that that's kind of a concentration. It's not to be in New York, like in Nairobi or wherever, or London, you know. It's just about how do I represent the space and the place that we're in by really concentrating on the mundane life, the everyday life to tell stories. Thank you for that. We, we have a question in the chat from, from Adam, Adam Yawe. On the topic of inclusivity, what advice do you have to encourage women to participate in activities where fewer women are seen, speaking from the perspective of skateboarding? Adam, by the way, we're going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> uh, Adam, thank you for the question. You have to realize the society we exist in. Being a female body in a public space is a very transgressive act that can get you into a lot of trouble. So, and that's something you may never go through as a male body. I'm not going to call you a man unless you define yourself that way. And that's, you know, other social kind of implications for that. But I'm just saying that being a woman in a public space and taking up space in a public space is a highly transgressive act that comes with different violences, whether muted or overt. So the question is, how are you creating that space for lack of a better word, as a safe space, but really there's nothing like a safe space. Uh, how are you including interests? And at times, maybe you won't find people for 10 years from now, to be honest. I've had people say that women are not interested in technology. And I'm like, no. But then, you know, they throw around numbers and show me. And I'm like, okay, what's the attrition rate of girls from primary school? How many girls end up I'm from a certain class that I don't have to think about early childhood marriage, but a majority of, of girls in Kenya have to think about early childhood marriage. And that's a fact. Um, how many girls are going to go into secondary school, depending, you know, we say we have free education and everything else, but let's be honest about the world we live in in this country. Um, how many girls will be lost to FGM? How many? And these are topics we don't want to discuss because we're so civilized. But that I really looking at, I understand where you're coming from because you want to include, but then there's a gap and you're wondering why. And it really is looking at socially what happens to women, socially what happens to women from zero to 65 and beyond. I'm not saying the diet 65, women live beyond 65, but I'm just giving you a, 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 a sense of age. I think it's important to include but to be honest about the type where the space that you're including and who are you bringing in, who will then also say that this space is also available to us as women. There's a lot of offices that are highly misogynistic, highly masculinistic, you know. So, yes, women are in the workplace, but how, how are we allowed to operate in that space if, if, if there's certain things being talked around about us or there's a different value system that is accorded? Or if I speak and say something, Jorge says the same thing, suddenly it's Jorge who's considered the guy who had the idea, you know, like, and you know, like, to be honest, you know, you will, Adam, I understand where you're coming from. And we've talked about this and I, 
absolutely understand that you're you really have the intention of including women and just think about the world uh, that we actually exist in and start to think you know who are the female skateboarders who are interested how are you having the space within which they come into that is welcoming to them and that even means you know you go to offices that have no sanitary towel disposal women menstruate the only reason we are here is because of a menstruating female who gave birth to us yet that is something that will never be discussed um and you know women have to figure it out somewhere else and that's why you have uh, girls who don't go to school during that you know during the when they're menstruating or are ashamed when they have their period. So, you know, these are not things that are your fault, Adam, <laughs> in any way. And I'm not saying you do any of these things, but just understand the world and see who are your female allies within the skateboarding community who will join you and say, you know what, this is a space that is for us. And again, women are not a monolith. That's a fact of life. So, you have to just if you're doing this work, you have to commit to it. And as I said, maybe 10 years from now when you're old and your knees are bad and you can't skateboard, you'll see like 15 women, two guys, you know. Um but you just have to commit to the work. I commit to um ensuring that women, no, not even women, we are represented as a different identities that we are with the work that I do and I do it every day, not every day, you know, every time I have a project intentionally and hopefully in 10 years we'll never have to even think about that the people i work with will be representative of the different identities around and they would have gone off and done other things because we work together and they have the experience and they create a whole other partnership that we can work with so you'll have your work cut out for you adam um, but don't stop i think it's very encouraging even to see you know women exactly. in such spaces like you you know it's a Pioneer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're thinking it was about Adam. I'm like, yes, it's very encouraging. Adam is asking this question. <laughs> That's encouraging too. But yeah, it is encouraging for creatives who are just starting, right? To be able to see their spaces that are run by women and are inclusive and are pioneering for female creatives to actually get in the spaces and not otherwise, right? So, well done on that too. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh yeah, uh everybody is welcome. And oh, and just one thing um as I said, which is very important, everything I've done hasn't worked out the first time. For all the creatives out there, I have failed very many times, <laughs> very very many times. Uh the reason I'm still here is I've picked up myself. I've learned or maybe not at times, but I have continued <laughs> and I have persisted and I I really want to encourage people that you know as i said the program i wanted to get into in uni i didn't get into it the first year i didn't i had another year of english literature and having to hang around kenyan kids and saying i'm doing english literature while everybody was being an engineer or a computer scientist you know <laughs> and you know the embarrassment of oh you do english literature oh you're dumb uh but <laughs> it's it's really i i just want to reiterate that that it's not always going to go the way you expect but persist just persist and do your homework thank wise, you wise words thank you Have you got any question or any other wise parting thoughts that you'd like to leave us with or I said question for the community any answers that you'd like to get Yes I would like to know 
what people i know this is such a broad question but bear with me what do people actually want to see and watch is it fantasy is it horror in whatever medium right um moving image that is and also in immersive like what are the stories that you'd like to explore like what are your interests i'd really like to know because the work that i do needs to have an audience and um i mean i'm entertained by myself every day uh but how how what what do people want to see what do people want to learn no not learn sorry get to uh dig into like what are the kind of maybe themes or ideas or moments in history like what do people actually want to see what do people respond to i think that would be that would be interesting because you know we just have you know we have the telenovelas we have the drama you know we have very specific media that we have access to that's mass broadcast but like what do people want to see like what's of interest is it historical is it fantasy is it horror is it thriller like and what 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 kind of space do they they want to see emerge out of all of this so more around the, the themes of the content rather than the platform yeah just like yeah what 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 is it that you'd like to see you know is it about the elephants in mount kenya i don't know probably <laughs> <laughs> people have many different varied interests that would be a very interesting question well, yeah let's see and then we can like create and you know create competitions or create you know anthologies around that you know i don't know i as i say i like to play and also um well done on the games for change festival oh uh, thank you thank you so much that's it where where can people find you discover your work get in touch with you we're on instagram at akoya co a k o i a c o and on the web www.akoya.africa but mainly just send us a dm we respond imagine we do <laughs> good thank you thank you so much nyambura this has been awesome we would go on and on but i think we'll i know <laughs> yeah we've still got so many other projects of yours to get through yes so we'll save the the second half of your career or the first one rather for next time <laughs> yeah for sure and thank you very much and thank you for this platform it's really excellent thank you bye everyone bye bye drink <laughs> wine watch coffee <laughs> yeah, coffee. Next time you can have wine. Yeah. Next time I think I'm just gonna, you know, all these hard hitting <laughs> questions. <laughs> Thank you for joining us everyone. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to Africa Design Podcast where we share stories and learn from each other. Please share your thoughts in the comments below and do subscribe to our channel from wherever you listen to your podcast. See you again soon. Mm-hmm.